question and um, you can respond with a raised hand. How many of you are a coach or you've ever been a coach? Go ahead and lift it up, lift it up. All right, great, okay. I coached a basketball team for one season, I think, that one of our uh, sons was involved in. So, um, so there are coaches who coach softball, volleyball, basketball, uh, all kinds of sports usually. But have you ever heard of a life coach? Anybody ever heard of a life coach? All right. Well, I, I know about life coaches, but I had to look up exactly what, what a life coach does. I kind of had my idea in my head, but I want to get it right. So a, according to verywellmind.com, a life coach is a wellness professional who helps people make progress in their lives in order to attain greater fulfillment. So a life coach helps people in the progress of their lives uh, to, to attain greater fulfillment, and specifically in areas of relationships, careers, and day-to-day life. And so that's what a, what a life coach does. Give me just a second here. I want to get this where I can get my hand on it easily. There we go. Well, uh, some of what we're talking about in uh, Titus, the book of Titus that we're looking at together, some of what we're talking about is, I would say, in the form of coaching our lives. And we have not just a human being who is a life coach, but we have a supreme being who is a life coach. We have not just coaching sessions or seminars to attend for life coaching, but we actually have a a resource in our hands, and it is the Word of God. It is the Scriptures that coaches our lives. But God coaches our life not just so that we will be fulfilled and so that we will achieve our goals, but so that we will fulfill His purpose for us. In fact, He is the one who made us. He is our designer And our ultimate purpose in life is to honor and glorify God. And so God's word gives us principles and guidance in how to do that, how to honor him with our lives. But let me say that a secondary benefit of honoring God with your life and living for that supreme designer who is God is fulfilling. It is fulfilling. And it will bring true joy to your life. And so we're looking together at the book of Titus, and uh, today we are in uh, Titus chapter 2. And so if you haven't already, please join me there in your Bibles in Titus chapter 2. And our focus as we look at this little letter from Paul to a man called Titus is learning and living. And so not only learning what God's Word tells us, but also living accordingly. And we are looking together right now in chapter 2, so we've been walking along through this Uh, this little book of the Bible. We're now in chapter 2 and looking at it as a way of understanding what healthy living looks like and especially healthy living for Christians. And if you remember, last week we talked about the fact that Paul uses a word uh, numerous times here in in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Titus and in the translation that that we're using here today. It's the word sound, S-O-U-N-D, sound in the sense of whole, and uh, having integrity, so sound in that sense. But, but the word, the Greek word is hugaino. We hear the word hygiene, 
in that, so the original language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek language uses that word hygaino. We hear hygiene in that, so we think in terms of healthy. What is healthy? And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound or healthy doctrine. So we need to believe the right things. We need to have healthy doctrine. Doctrine is belief. It's what you believe in. It's what you, you actually build your life on. And in this case, it is, it is truth. It's truth about God. It's truth about Jesus. It's truth about the purpose of our lives. But what he's saying here is, so, so Paul is telling Titus, who is, who is guiding and pastoring and shepherding those people and building that, that church group, he says, Titus, I want you to tell those people to make sure that they're not only believing the right things, but that they are living in a way that corresponds to that truth. So tell them the things that are proper, the things that are fitting, the things that, that correspond to healthy doctrine. Be, tell them to believe the right things, but also make sure, Titus, that you also help them understand they need to shape their lives by what it is that they know, what it is that they believe to be true. So that's what we mean by, by healthy living. And we are working through this description of a healthy Christian in Titus chapter 2. Let me just read the first few verses for us again. I won't go back and read uh, the entire chapter down through verse 15 like I did last week, but just to introduce us and get us started again here this morning. So Titus chapter 2 verse 1 says, But as for you... Speak the things which are proper, suitable, appropriate, fitting for sound or healthy doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. To love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I'm going to stop there, but he, you can see he goes on to talk about young men and, and servants. And so this is all-inclusive. He's talking about everyone here, isn't he? And, and today we're going to finish up looking at the, uh, the qualities here that he identifies in the life of men, specifically older men here. And then we'll just get started in uh, the instructions to the ladies as well as we work through this description. So just as, um, as a, a little refresher, uh, last Sunday we saw that, that Paul told Titus to tell the men in Crete, on the island of Crete, to live soberly. So don't be under the influence of substances, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Live respectably. Now, if you're listening very carefully and you were paying attention last week, you might notice that might have noticed that the way that I said it was different from the way it was on the screen. So that was a mistake on my part. So I corrected it on the screen. It's not live respectfully. That's important too. But live respectably is is the idea of this word. So 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 live in a way that earns the respect of other people. Give them a reason to respect you. Be careful with your your actions, your reputation is the idea there. So live respectably. And then we finished up with living sensibly, and that is use your head. Use good judgment. Don't just be impulsive. Don't make foolish decisions. Uh, Make sure that your thinking is shaped by truth, again, by 
the truth of the Word of God and make sure that you guard your imaginations as well, the, the life of your thoughts inside of your head. So we talked about those. And today we're going to uh, then get into this fourth way to practice healthy Christian living, especially for men, and that is to live trustfully, trustfully. Live in a way that is trustful. Now look with me there in uh, verse 2 again. So it says that the older men, be sober, reverent, temperate, sound. There's that word again. It means healthy. Healthy in your faith, in your love, and in your patience. So he uses that, that word healthy to describe now three terms. Be healthy in your faith, in your love, and in your patience. And by faith, I think what he's talking about here is your personal faith, your personal faith. Not just what you believe in, like the faith, right? But, but your personal faith, your trust. What do you trust in? What are you placing your confidence in? And we know that the Christian life begins with trust, doesn't it? The Christian life begins with trust. What do we, how, let me ask it this way, how do we start the Christian life by exercising trust or faith? We do that when we trust in Jesus Christ, don't we? The one who died for our sins and rose again. And that's just the beginning. That's just the starting point for a person who is beginning to have a relationship with God. And that is by trusting in Jesus who died for your sins and rose again. And again, we think about the fact that God made all this. God created everything. And God brought us into existence for a purpose. And that purpose is to draw attention, rightfully so, to who he is to give him praise and cause people to think highly of him. The problem is we fail to do that, don't we? In fact, he's given us guidelines and instructions in the word of God that help us know how to live in a way that gives honor to the creator. But the problem is we have disobeyed those as individuals, as people, not even just as a human race, but individually. But God is just, isn't he? And so God has to exercise his justice against sin, disobedience to him. So there has to be a penalty for sin. But God is not only just, he is also loving. He's a loving God, and he made us to enjoy that relationship with him. And so he made a way for his justice to be satisfied and for us to be in a right relationship with him. That's where Jesus comes in, doesn't it? Because Jesus paid the full price Jesus fulfilled the penalty for our sins when he died in our place on the cross. And he showed that he was qualified to do that and that he has power over death and sin when he rose from the dead. Now, don't answer this out loud. Don't answer this out loud. Just think it in your head. Do you really believe that a dead man came back to life? Do you believe that? Do you believe that a man who was really and truly dead actually came back to life? Well, that's what happened to Jesus. And that's why, that is why we can say Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sin and then also to set us free from sin's power over our lives. Uh, Let me tell you a little story that I think helps us understand what I'm talking about here. 
uh, not long after Faith and I moved here, uh, we were having some things done on our home and all that, and we uh, wanted to make arrangements, some financial arrangements, with a, a credit union, kind of a bank. And so we went to this credit union, and we met with, a, with one of the uh, people there. I'll call him a banker, uh, one of the bankers. And we sat down in his little cubicle, and he was making conversation. He said, oh, so, so what do you do? And I said, well, I was a pastor, and now we teach at Faith Baptist Bible College. And it's interesting because sometimes I think when, when I tell people I'm a pastor, people feel like they have to say something that sounds religious or something, right? And I don't expect that. I don't expect that at all. But, but people just want to, they're just making conversation. I think he was doing that. He said, oh, he said, you know what? He said, I just hope that when I die and stand before God, that, that he'll just add up all the good things I've done and the bad things that I have done done and hopefully the good will outweigh the bad and he'll say come on in right come on into heaven and you know if if you're if you're a believer you know that we talk about people who think that way well this man actually did that was that was the way he thought and so he was going to move on into you know our business and I said can I can I show you something and this was just kind of spinning off my head and we had a piece of paper with some information on there and I took the piece of paper and I said I said, I'm just going to draw some lines here on this paper. And I made just a bunch of lines across. And I said, let's say that represents our sins, right? All the bad things we've done that you're talking about. And then I drew some lines on the other side. And I said, Let, let's say that represents the, the good things that, that we've done. Okay, so there's a number of bad things, a number of good things. I said, here's the problem. Even if the good things did outweigh the bad things, even if you could do the math and add up all the, the bad things I've done, the good things I've done, and maybe even I've done enough good things to, to exceed the bad things I've done, the problem is the bad things are still there. They are still marks against me. They still cause me to be guilty before God. They are acts of disobedience to, to his word and his laws and his will. So I can't erase those. I can't make those go away. I'm still guilty before God. I said, but let me show you something else. And I drew a cross in the middle of the paper. And I said, this represents Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life and obeyed all of God's laws. And Jesus died on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, do you know what he was doing? He was actually taking onto himself the guilt for all the bad things I've done and you've done and everybody has done. So Jesus was taking all the sins that we've committed on himself. He was not guilty of sin, but before God, God arranged it so that Jesus could actually bear on himself the penalty and God's just wrath on my sin. So when Jesus died on the cross for me, that's, that's what that means. But I said, let me, let me tell you something else. Jesus fully obeyed God. Jesus was perfectly righteous. So Jesus can, in a transaction that God has designed, actually not only take my sins upon himself, but he can actually credit his perfect righteousness to me and to you. That's called imputed righteousness in theology. And I said, so, so here's Jesus on the cross, and he's taking our sins upon himself, but he's also offering his perfect righteousness to us. In fact, Isaiah the prophet talked about this when he said in Isaiah 53, 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Not God's way, but his own way. And the Lord, God in heaven, has laid on him, Jesus on the cross, the iniquities, the sins of all of us. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So we've gone astray. But God has made a way for our sins to be laid, to be placed, to be counted against Jesus. And he could pay the price for them so that then he could give to us his perfect righteousness and transfer that to you and to me so that we have a right relationship and a right standing before God. And I said to this banker guy, I said, you know, the, these are actually accounting terms, right? This is, this is, this is count, accounting. Uh, these are accounting concepts I'm talking about here. He said, wow, that's interesting. And I didn't push for more at that point because we went on with our business, but I was thankful to be able to share that with him. But the key to that is not just the fact that Jesus did it, and that God offers it, but that you trust in what he's done for you, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, is what, what the Bible says. So when we, when we trust, we not only say, oh, okay, I think that's possible, that's a nice theory, or maybe that really happened, but trusting is resting yourself on that reality, and trusting your eternal destiny on that truth and saying, Jesus, you died for me. I believe in you. You rose again. I accept what you did for me. My guilt's on you. Your righteousness is now on me, and I trust you to be my Savior. And that is a choice. That's a decision that each of us can make. So, so I say all that because that's where, that's where this healthy faith, being sound in faith, starts. That's the starting point with God. But then our life goes on from there, right? Living as a healthy Christian means that we, we trust in God's word for our lives. We trust that God's word is sufficient. We trust that God's word gives us comfort. We trust the promises that God gives to us in his word. I know some of you have been Christians for many years. And there are times, I think, in, in a situation like that, where a person's life can become routine, and maybe there aren't as many challenges, and you're just sort of living day by day, and it's possible to even forget how important it is to depend on God. And if, if you aren't facing trials or problems or seeing your own inadequacies very well, you might just kind of start coasting. We have to remember, we need God every day. We need his word for every situation in life, every part of our lives. We need to search the word for guidance. We need to claim God's promises in prayer. We need to intentionally keep growing and trusting God day by day. So if, if life has become routine, you find yourself coasting in the Christian life, maybe it's time to say, Lord, I need to renew this, this way of living depending on you, trusting you every day of my life. I'll talk to parents for a minute, especially if you have children in your home. It is possible to feel secure and confident in family life when everything seems okay, everyone's behaving, and rely on our 
parenting skills, our protectiveness of our children, and exposing them to God's word. And Faith and I can say from experience that it is not enough to just follow a parenting formula and assume everything's going to turn out okay. We must trust God as parents and really rely on him in prayer and plead with him through prayer to not just follow a prescribed formula or steps in Christian parenting, but to really depend on God for his work, his active involvement in the lives of our children to to captivate and to guide their hearts, not just to see their behavior conform. So I think a way of living trustfully as dads, he's talking to men here, as dads, is to pray for your children's souls. We do go through trying circumstances, don't we? We go through, do go through hardships. And those are times to trust as well, times to live trustfully. I've shared with you guys a little bit. Uh, my, my mother lived with us for 12 years, and since last summer she's been in uh, assisted living. And then about a month ago she fell and fractured her hip, so she's been in, she had surgery, and then she's been in a skilled nursing facility for uh, three weeks, I think it's been, and then just this past Friday, she was transferred to, uh, to long-term care, uh, Mill Pond in Ankeny. I'm the son who takes care of my 99-year-old mom now. Now, I don't do it alone. I'm so thankful for my wife and all that she does, but, but as, as the son who is local, she, she's with us, my other siblings are very supportive, but they live further away. I bear a lot of responsibility, and I feel that responsibility. And I'll, I'll tell you, over the last month, I've become anxious about that. What's going to happen? How are we going to care for her? Where is she going to go? Are there going to be enough funds to provide for what she needs? And then all the, the details that have to be worked out. And I have found myself just becoming very anxious about that. I'm going to ask you to go somewhere else in your Bibles for a minute. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, I was just having my devotions, reading along, started reading in Matthew, reading the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. So many treasured words and sayings in there that he gave to us that we love. And I get to, uh, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew six twenty-five. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. I mean, life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Look at the birds, Jesus said, of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Or, some translations say, one hour, a single hour, to his span of life. You know who's in charge of caring for that little sparrow over in Mill Pond, my 99-year-old mother? Her heavenly father is, isn't he? Now, he does it through us. He does it through us. But he's caring for her. And he says, don't worry. There's going to be a place for her. There's going to be provision for her. There's going to be care for her because because she is of value to him and, and her days are in his hands. One day more, one day less. I have no control over that. When it's her time, when God takes her home, we will, we will celebrate that. We will grieve, but we will also celebrate. Verse 31, don't worry, he says. 
Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Verse 33, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, Dean, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I needed that. That really encouraged me. And I was reminded of of Paul's words in Philippians 4. Hey, don't be anxious, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So whatever your hardship, trial, whatever causes you anxiety, what are we trusting in? Ourselves, our ability to control or provide or make things happen, turn out a certain way. Sure, we do our part. But we can trust in our Heavenly Father, can't we, to care for us. Whatever your painful, trying experience might be, it is a time to trust. I think also, as you see what's going on in the world around you, it gets concerning, doesn't it? Very troubling. It's a time to trust, to know that God is sovereign, and he truly does have an eternal purpose and plan. And then, I think it's also important to live trustfully, As you look over at that horizon in life, the sunset of your life, and maybe nearing the end of life, and trust your God. He has carried you through this life, and he will see you safely home. He will see you safely home. And you can trust God with your own well-being, your own soul, as you come to that place in life. And you can trust God with those you love who have gone home to heaven already as well. The old hymn says, While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, the one I trust in, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Live trustfully, beginning to end in your life. That's a way to to live healthfully as a Christian. Now we're going back to Titus chapter 2, and let's look at verse 2 again. So he says, sound or healthy in your faith, and then sound in love, sound in love. So healthy living includes living in a way that is loving. Faith has to do with your relationship with God, your heavenly Father. Love has to do with God, of course, loving God, but also includes your relationship with other people. And this is, you've heard the term agape, that's the Greek word here, agape, which is not just the kind of love that friends have for each other or that family members have, although that is deep and meaningful. But this is another extreme degree of love in which we, we love people more deeply and more intensely in a way that is selfless and even costs us. This kind of love puts other people ahead of ourselves And this kind of love compels us to do what is best for the other person, whether it is reciprocated or not. Whether we receive anything, a a thank you or or something done for us, acknowledgement, anything. This kind of love gives and helps regardless of whether we receive anything back or not. And it doesn't wear out, it doesn't grow cold It doesn't justify self-centeredness and self-indulgence. It never says, I've put in my time. It's time for other people to to pitch in. I'm done. And remember who he's talking to here. Love is for everybody, but he's saying, men, men. How healthy is your love? How sound 
Is your love, and you and I know that we can be very self-centered, can't we? We can be self-indulgent. We are naturally pleasure seekers. That is how we think. It's how we instinctively function as self-centered pleasure seekers. Oh yeah, every now and then we might do something nice or say something say something helpful or encouraging to someone, but generally speaking, our needle keeps going back to selfishness and self-centeredness and self-indulgence. So this takes a change. This requires transformation. This is something that Jesus Christ shapes in us as we get to know him and understand his love, and we begin to follow that pattern and emulate the kind of love he has for us. Glance with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Maybe we just need a refresher. Look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is known as the love chapter of the Bible. So if you want a reminder, if you want something to pray through as a prayer list, if you want a, uh, a, a checkpoint to gauge how you're doing in this area, uh, just, just look at 1 Corinthians 13 starting in verse 4 and say, God, how, how am I in these areas? Or better yet, say to your wife or to your kids. Or a friend. How am I doing in these areas? I really want to know. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Does not parade itself. Not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. But rejoices in the truth. Bears all things believes all things in the sense of giving people the benefit of the doubt, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Now that's powerful stuff, isn't it? There's one person who's done that perfectly, and that's Jesus Christ. So again, he is our substitute when it comes to the penalty for our sins. So we can be forgiven for being unloving, but he also is the model for us to follow. And we grow in these qualities There's one more quality we see for older men uh, back in Titus chapter 2. It's at the end of verse 2 where he says, in patience. So healthy living includes living patiently. Uh, We often think of patience as being patient with people. And this is more focused on our circumstances. A good definition of this would be endurance with a purpose. Endurance with a purpose. It is steadfast persistence. It means you keep going and you don't give up. And when circumstances and problems and hardship slow you down, wear you down, and discourage you, you put one foot ahead of the other and you take another step and you live another day and you face another situation. And you pray again. And you obey again. Whatever that might look like. When there's opposition from the world. When your flesh is strong. When Satan is on the attack. When you grow weary in well-doing, it's time to endure. Time to endure. Now, I'm not trying to categorize anybody here this morning. I shared with you last week how uh, in the first century the... Uh, Hippocrates used some medical terminology to designate the stages of life that Paul's talking about here. Older men, older women, younger men and younger women and so on. 
So, so the idea is that there are stages of life, right? There are stages of life. And, and so you can maybe even think of yourself, well, am I on the younger end, am I on the older end? But the reality is that as you move along in life, there's kind of that sliding scale, and, and you, you just begin to understand life, people, and the world, and evil dictators, and corrupt business practices, and even Christians. Sometimes people who claim to be Christians, who let you down. You can become jaded by that. Like, what, what's the use? What's the point? One writer captured this well, I think. And again, remember, he's talking to older men, so people who are a little bit farther along in life. And what can happen to them? And listen to what he says. He says, older believers have lived long enough to see many people experience misfortune, suffer great pain. Some died in early age. They might have even seen a spouse or a child suffer from cancer or some debilitating disease. And these people he's describing, he says, have learned the value of time and of opportunity. They, they've learned to accept their own mortality, the imperfections of this present world, the inability, listen to this, the inability of material things to give lasting and deep satisfaction. They've seen utopian ideas fall. And they've learned how short-lived and disappointing euphoric emotional experiences can be. And that might describe somebody here. It's like, yeah, I've come through enough of life. There's just some bad stuff. And it's hard. Here's what I think we need to think about. When you've seen a lot of life, you learn what you can trust and what you can't. Right? So we're living trustfully, trusting in the right things. But you've also learned that there are times that you need to just press on in spite of those disappointments and failures that you observe or that you have felt. And finish your course and to do it well. And the way to do that is to have faith in God and show love toward all and endure to the end. In fact, if you notice there in Titus chapter uh, ch- chapter 2, those three sound in faith, love, and patience. D- does that sound familiar, those, those three ideas together, faith, love? In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it's faith, hope, and love. Here it's faith, love, and patience, kind of Hope and patience, two sides of the same coin. What do you hope in? God, which results in endurance. So so what we're seeing here is that, that we can complete our course and finish well by trusting in God, loving others, and enduring to the end. And sometimes that's what it is. It's endurance by God's grace. I think that's what he means here by men living patiently. Paul then draws attention to another group in verse 3. And we'll touch on this this morning. He says, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So, so as, we, as we move this now, as Paul does with Titus, and as we do now in our thinking, to, uh, to a, a mature Christian woman, what are marks of a mature Christian woman? 
How does a Christian woman live in a way that is healthy in her faith and in her life? And by the way, as we talk about this, uh, as men, it's not time to tune out, but time to think of our sisters in Christ and our, our mothers and grandmothers, whether um, biologically, family, or in Christ, right, in the family of God, and pray for them and encourage them in these areas as well because we, we are doing this together. And these are areas for ladies to model and also to mentor others in, as Paul goes on to say, teaching others. And the first one of these is, he says, being reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. And the word behind our translation here is actually related to the place and the activity of a temple. It is the idea of doing priestly activities or or sacred work. So so he says to, to ladies... If you're going to live as a Christian in a way that is sound, that is healthy, that you will actually view your life, your role in life, your your responsibilities in life, your place in life as not common, not just routine. You're doing the work of a priest or we might say a priestess. You're doing sacred work. That's what he means by this. So he means by, by reverent in behavior. It means thinking of every area of your life as something that is, that is sacred. Your behavior that he refers to here means your activity, your conduct, your attitude, how you treat other people, how you respond in various circumstances. I heard this term once. I can't remember where I heard it from, but, but the idea of an aura not that you literally glow or radiate, but, but you, you have an aura. You have a presence. And people see you and they observe your life. You emanate something. Something comes from your eyes, from, from your attitude, from your personality. The way you carry yourself. The way you talk to other people. The way you treat people. The way you react to situations. The look on your face, right? How you put yourself together in the morning. There's an aura there. What is that? Do you view your life, who you are as an individual, as something common, routine, nobody cares, doesn't matter, this is the way I am? Or do you view it as something sacred? A way to honor God with the person that you are and the way that you live your life. Viewing your life as sacred means that you approach each day, each role, each responsibility, each interaction as a sacred privilege and duty. It means you'll be God conscious in everything you do. It means you'll pray over your day. God, I want to honor you with my day. It means you commit yourself to God. God, I belong to you. I want my life to bring praise to you. It means you depend on God. God, this is, my life is your work, so I need your help. Will you guide me? Will you enable me? Will you shape me? It means you'll be sensitive to gospel opportunities as you have conversations with people when you're around with your neighbors, with people at school, with places where you, you do business or that you work with, and you're sensitive to those opportunities to share the gospel and it means you'll live out your days for the glory of God 
If you have children in your home, it means that you see the the mundane and the ordinary and even the toil and the stress of being a parent as something sacred, something to do for the Lord. It also means that when those children are grown and gone, that you see every day as an opportunity to live it for the glory of God. It's not just me time now. But now you have opportunities to live your life for his glory. And think, how does God want me to grow? How does he want me to serve? So I'm not going to talk about my mom all the time, I promise. But I love her a lot. Uh, I, was, I was going through some of her things recently. I know you can't see this very well. I'm going to read it to you, don't worry. But I just wanted you to see a copy of this. I was going through some of her things here recently, and she kept these little journals and notebooks, and I was flipping through one, and I saw this page. It's dated November 29, 2004, so this was the day after her 82nd birthday, and a little over three years after my father passed away. So she'd been a widow for three years, 82 years old. This was her mindset. All right. She's not a, well, okay, she's a saint in the sense of being a Christian, but she's not a super saint, all right? She, she's special, but I think in some ways she can be an example for us today. At that point in life, here's how she was thinking, and this is her handwriting, and this is what she wrote. My personal goals. To put myself on a good schedule that is pleasing to God and that will maintain my health, spiritually and physically. To maintain a better prayer life that will bring blessings to others. To be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. To be sensitive to and meet the needs of my family members and extended family. To be sensitive to and meet the needs of those whom God has placed around me. To be sensitive to and meet the needs of my church family. To prepare myself spiritually, financially, legally, and environmentally, I think that means her surroundings, for my demise, for the end. So at 82, she's now 99, that's what she was thinking like. Not knowing how much of life would be ahead of her, not knowing where her life would take her, not knowing what challenges she might face, and any of that. But she had goals to live her life in a way that I think shows that she saw her life as sacred, something to do for God, those years of her life, to do them, to live them for the Lord. So, so I share that as an example to help us understand that whether you're young or old or somewhere in between, one way to live a life that is meaningful and God-honoring is to view it as sacred and to make your plans and your choices accordingly. As we uh, tied things up last week, I shared with you that all of these qualities reflect the heart and life of our Savior. As we consider them, we think of him. Jesus lived in these ways. Jesus demonstrated these qualities. Jesus responded to temptations and trials and people, hostility in these ways. And he lived lovingly giving his life a sacrifice for our sins. He lived patiently, enduring the cross all the way to the end. And we thank him for that, don't we? We praise him for that. 
But we can also gaze at these qualities in his life and, and let them shape how we think and let them guide how we live. We, we see his glory, as, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, we behold his glory and we are changed into his image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. So as you look closely and carefully at these qualities, you say, Lord, I want my life to look like this. The Holy Spirit activates these in us and and grows them in us. And the circumstances of life bring them out of us. And as we pray, as we seek his help, we begin to resemble Christ, which honors him. And then it's good for us to remember that healthy Christian living does start with what Jesus called in John chapter 3, being born again. So we can't just say, oh, I'm going to change, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, I'm going to be a better person. This will make me get along well with others. That's not the idea. It starts with that faith in Jesus who died for your sins and, and rose again. If you just start trying to change and be a better person, you'll be frustrated and eventually fail. But this, this starts with your heart being changed and it gives you the ability to live in these ways. And then we just need to realize that, that we put these into practice and we live in these ways by acknowledging our need. God, I, I need to grow in this area. I need to become this kind of person. And I accept your grace, your, your supernatural enabling power that helps me to do this. And, and then you grow daily. You don't necessarily leap into these qualities. You grow gradually, progressively in them, and it is all through Jesus Christ. And we fall short, but he forgives, and he strengthens us, and you keep growing. I'm 59, still growing, still growing, right? And we all should be. Healthy living means knowing the truth about God. Yes, learning. The truth about yourself and about life, but also shaping your life accordingly. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the treasure of your word. Thank you that we can see a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ in what we read and talk about from your word. We do thank you for your character. We are so thankful that you gave yourself for us, dying in our place, being raised to life so that you can give us eternal life. We praise you for the way that you help each of us to become what you want us to be. So guide us in these things, we pray, and we trust you to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.